Hey guys, what's happening? Welcome to Your Forest Podcast. I'm Matthew Christoph, and uh, today I've got an interesting podcast for you guys about uh, forest fires, more forest fire stuff. First couple of sponsors, we got Greenlink Forestry. They are providing resource inventory analysis for mostly the province of Alberta. And also, we have uh, Damaged Timber. Damaged Timber is a, an apparel company out of Edmonton. 10% of all the money they get from the sale of their clothing is going to go towards a scholarship program for environmental sciences, forestry, conservation, uh, all kinds of land reclamation, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, yeah, they're awesome. So if you're gonna, like, you guys are going to go out and buy some nice hats and toques and sweaters and all kinds of stuff they're, they're coming out with. Uh, you may as well try and support something you believe in, right? So if you guys want to support conservation and, and forestry and environmental sciences, uh, yeah, you can pick up their hats at uh, hats and apparel at uh, damagedtimber.com. If you use the code YOURFOREST10, you'll get 10% off at checkout. That's on top of all the additional sales and everything else. Also, uh, FRIA, the Forest Resource Improvement Association of Alberta, is also a sponsor of the podcast. Today, for you guys, I have Ellen Whitman, and Daniel Thompson. They are both forest fire research scientists from the Northern Resource Center uh, in Canada, in Edmonton, Alberta. And uh, yeah, we had a really interesting conversation regarding forest fires. And uh, we talked. We, we start. We talked about a ton of stuff. It's like an hour and a half long. Uh, we talked about kind of the forces uh, at play when it comes to uh, the factors affecting fire behavior. So we talked about the forest fire weather index. So that's all of the things that they measure in order to tell how fast a fire is going to spread, how deep it's going to burn, uh, all kinds of different stuff. Uh, we talked about uh, burn severity. We talked about the Fort McMurray fire uh, a lot at the beginning and a lot near the end. The last half an hour, we talked a lot about the Fort Mac Horse River fire. Um, we talked, yeah, extreme lengths about a lot of different stuff. So you guys are interested in finding out details regarding the research being done on forest fire behavior and forest fire uh, indices in Canada. You can check this podcast out. It's a really good one. Uh, yeah, I hope you guys like it. And uh, without any further ado, here is the episode with myself, Ellen, and Daniel. So uh, I guess one way I was thinking to start it off, um, like the other day I was listening to a, a podcast. It was the Rogan experience, I'll be honest. <laughs> so there's two comedians talking about it. It's not, they're not really going to get perfect environmental information there, but just kind of to start things off, uh, they were talking about the, like the California fires and stuff and how those are running rampant and, and they're big and, and being kind of, uh, I guess not well spoken in, in the, in the art of firefighting, all that kind of stuff, but they we're under the assumption that, oh, we can just all come together and like everyone grabs a tool and we all like have at it as a whole society and a community and we can just, we can take care of this. It'll be great. It'll be awesome. And it's like, that's really like thoughtful. I'm, yeah, that's very positive and <laughs> good thinking. But like, no, these things are a force of nature, right? And they're like, <laughs> they can't be stopped like that. So I think mm-hmm. that's like a huge misconception that people have with, with, with firefighting, right? Like I know, like I was in Slave Lake, uh, uh, I, I grew up in Slave Lake, so I, I have family members who lost houses and stuff in that. And then yeah, talking to the firefighters there and uh, also the firefighters after the Fort Mac fire and that. Mm-hmm. People, I mean, they obviously get mad about, you know, their house burnt down. They want to blame somebody. So they blame the firefighters or they blame the mayor or they blame whatever. But people don't really understand the idea that this is a force of nature. Like it's literally nature's blowtorch. Like you're not going <laughs> to you're not gonna stop this thing, right? So, yeah, it's just an interesting 
it's an interesting dynamic thinking about that, the fact that it is that force of nature and getting people to understand that, right? It's yeah, and I, and I think actually before Fort McMurray, I I think it was harder for people to visualize in their mind the intensity of mm-hmm. a, what a really big boreal wildfire really looks like. Yeah, and I think a combination of that uh, that dash cam footage that you saw. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and then some of the other sort of iconic footage of you know cars in the ditch and the median of the highway and this you know, seemingly infinitely tall smoke column. Yeah. I think that really helped put the size and the scale and the intensity of those fires in the context of an F-150. Yeah. And I think people didn't realize that before. And even I found it really interesting. Slave Lake even felt uh, a little bit different. I was was working in the Slave Lake region um, uh, in my PhD at the time. And I remember you know, reading a lot of media about it and it didn't have the same, the, the power of the fire wasn't, uh, as, as apparent. Mm. And, and I think one of the things that happens in a lot of our Northern fires, so, you know, fire happens in Slave Lake, you see a little bit about how, how intense that fire was. Fort McMurray was really good about showing how intense those fires are. Yeah. And those sorts of fires occur every year in yeah. the North and, 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 you know, the 30 seconds of video footage, of some northern community being evacuated doesn't do it justice. No. In the same way that, you know, oh gosh, a month of really intense media and that first week or two with the nonstop loop yeah. of media footage really actually helped drive the message that yeah. um, once these fires are that size, no number of community members in a pick and a shovel <laughs> are, are going to do anything. And, and in fact, it's not safe to work around it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, you know, so, so some of the visuals coming out of Fort McMurray really helped uh, inform the public about the, the, how big these fires actually are and how little, when they're that size, we can really actually do um, about them. And then, and then going into our sort of research, yeah. what that means uh, to the landscape, what happens to the ecosystems yeah. that are that are uh, that are being exposed to this really large, really intense fire? Yeah, no, it's wild to think about because yeah, like you said, I mean, we don't even when we do firefighting in in Canada, like you guys know, we don't even attack the head most of the time, right? Like not if it's a big crowning fire, we don't bother because that's there's nothing we can do with that. We're just going to mm-hmm. put lives in danger and it's going to cause problems. So we attack the flanks and and the rear, right, to try and dumb that down. So in case the wind shifts. We don't have a, another weird shaped fire going off some other direction, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's just a big mis- misconception. I think people have that, like, oh, it's the firefighters' fault. Like they weren't there fast enough, or they didn't have enough, you know, We're bombers. Not trying hard enough. Yeah. Or yeah. Well, yeah. Why are you you're just sitting there sleeping? Like, come on. Like, yeah, I don't know. But <laughs> I, I feel like people think if you throw enough money at it, yeah, you could solve the problem. And there's definitely like money really helps, resources really help, and they can make a difference to making people safe. Yeah. But in terms of just put it out like it's not at all that simple no and people don't recognize that as much as they should but i agree with dan that yeah the awareness that came out of really big disasters like fort mcmurray helped a lot with public perception and understanding big time yeah no, and, sure. and even the way that we in the scientific community um the way we quantify fire you know we'll say oh this fire and some of those and i always have to do this you know the acres you know the the fires in california were I think 200,000 acres, so let's call that about 100,000 hectares. And that's not a very big fire in Canada. Yeah. But even myself, you know, and I deal with this all of the time, fire size and, and Ellen all the time, fire size. We're given these numbers. They mean nothing to people. And, and until you tell someone that, no, this fire is the size of the city of Toronto, mm-hmm. as Fort McMurray was, and its ultimate size was the, the size of Prince Edward Island. Yeah. And until you put it in the context of that means that there is 
uh, and, and for sort of Fort McMurray, at one point there was almost a thousand linear kilometers of fire front. Yeah. It's, and until and then you have to you imagine, that. Yeah. you know, because it's this sort of complicated shape with all sorts of little blobs and edges, yeah. and, and it's the size of Prince Edward Island, and you might have a few dozen helicopters and a, you know many hundreds of people, but yeah. but nonetheless you have a thousand kilometers of of yeah. uh, of fire spread, and some of that's really hot, and some of that's not. Yeah. You get guys on their hands and knees cold trailing all thousand <laughs> kilometers of it, right? It's just not going to happen, and that's why it takes a whole year to determine whether it's really, really out. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, they just wait for the freeze thaw cycle, and they're like, okay, I guess we'll fly it one more time with the infrared, and yeah. it's it seems like it's out. Okay, we'll call it out. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so I guess yeah, with, with that kind of introduction, we can start talking a little bit about your guys' uh, your guys' research, I suppose. If you don't mind, just pull it just a, you can pull it a little closer. Sorry. Just, yeah, be comfortable. I just I'm don't a quiet to, talker too. So. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I don't want to have to just amplify yours and then there's weird background noise or something. But, um, anyways, yeah, if we want to start, I was thinking a good place to start would be talking about like the factors that go into like fire behavior and stuff like that. So in relation to like the forest fire weather index and stuff, because um, like both your guys' papers talked a lot about like fire severity and 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 how that is all related to you know everything else. Um, Maybe did you guys want to like tag team the fire weather index? Explain that real quick so people listening can understand what that is. Sure. Yeah. No. That's and that's great. Um, the, the, maybe I'll just start off a little bit and then I'll pass it off to Ellen. When my my sort of elevator pick, pitch to uh, to describe what I do, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's you know the, this job title as a forest fire research scientist. Like, what does that really mean? <laughs> and I tell people, okay, you're driving into Jasper or Banff, and you see that colored dial. Yeah. And it's like, okay. There's a lot of math and science behind that. And I tell them, <laughs> I don't actually move the dial. Like, and is there ever no, the joke is, you know, everyone always says, like, do you move the dial? Like, the no, guy? no, yeah. that's, that's the ranger's job. They do a great job. They move the dial amongst, I'm not sure how we haven't invented automated ones yet. Yeah. We haven't got there. Among other jobs. They amongst other jobs. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not the, the only job they have. We haven't automated that one yet. Um, <laughs> maybe some AI will help. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, at the end of the day, we have this dial and that has these categories uh, and that really, you know, is that's the, the public face of that message. We yeah. want to tell you when the fire danger is low and, you know, still be careful with your campfire, but we'll still let you do your normal course of activities. And as the fire danger dials up, uh, we, you know, one has to be more and more cautious. We'll have fire bans. And, you know, if it's really extreme, like you saw in southern Alberta this year, yeah. there'll even be forest area closures, you know, no quads, no recreational camping. That drives people wild. Yeah, and <laughs> and when you're doing things that affect people's lives, yep. um, and this includes all, you know, we're in Alberta, so I'll just talk to Alberta, and, you know, even the municipalities that have their fire bans, they really need evidence to drive that, and particularly yep. when you're talking about um, the fire bans that we had uh, during Fort McMurray because it was very hot and dry during that fire. Yeah. And then also this year in southern Alberta, um, we had a very long-standing fire ban in the on the eastern slopes just outside and in and including the national parks because bc's really bad fire weather was spilling in there so we need yeah. uh tools to tell and improve to the public yeah. uh why we do these sort of management activities and then all of the other fire management activities so mm. uh we call man up uh so moving people around all the sort of preparedness um, suppression strategies once the fire is going, all all of these innumerable decisions. Yeah, uh, a lot of them at a single scale. Like I can pick up the duff and tell you, okay, it's dry. 
but you need to be able to map that and forecast that. So to what need... scale is it driving? Yeah, yeah. Or and whatever, like yeah. I can know what's going on in my backyard, but if mm-hmm. you're a forest area manager, you know, in say Slave Lake area where you're from, mm-hmm. you know, that's a huge area going from south to Slave Lake all the way almost to Fort Vermilion yep. in the north. It's so massive. and it can rain in one and not in the other. We have all these different fire tires. So we need uh, a common system that can encapsulate all sorts of different things that are going on in the forest it could be windy one day but maybe the soil is really wet yeah Uh, maybe that wind is accompanied by rain and so all of these uh, factors need to get rolled into sort of increasingly simple rolled up ideas that then we can communicate to uh, a first-year firefighter who doesn't maybe know much and the member of the public or a specialist who's making really dynamic decisions about where to move resources. Yeah. So, so about 100 years ago, the Canadian Forest Service and everyone else sort of came together and started investigating these sorts of things. And I'll, I'll short-circuit the history lesson. But um, <laughs> for about the past 40 years, we've had a system that we've all agreed on and everyone's trained. And it's a common language that describes the fire environment. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. It's, it, I, I always thought it was uh, interesting when you simplify all these things like like like, like uh, fine fuel moisture code and duff code and drought code and all these different areas of dryness or even the initial spread index so they take wind they take relative humidity they take uh, whatever sun temperature, temperature. They take, yeah all a bunch of kinds of different things and you boil it all down to like okay here is the number the number is 19 today okay what does that mean it's like okay mm-hmm. well zero means dry and 25 means or whatever it is right so that even somebody that doesn't know anything about it can look at it and go, okay, that's the scale. It's right there. Okay, that's bad or whatever, right? Yep. If they have it, yep. so it's it's a pretty yeah, it's a good system we have there. And you were even saying that they use it in New Zealand earlier too. Yeah, so, I, I just got back from New Zealand yeah. two days ago, <laughs> and uh, you know, I actually made a map that we use in our our uh, our big sort of conference room in Edmonton in, in the lab. We have a, I made a little map that shows you all the countries around the world that use the and it is the Canadian Fire Weather Index system. Yeah, it's invented by Canadians. Um, and it shows you, you know, New Zealand, they use it in its entirety and even, um, pretty much all of Europe, all of, of the European union countries, um, they use the, the fire weather side as well. So, so it is actually like one of Alaska uses it too. And I feel like Mexico maybe as well. Mexico uses a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And the Great Lakes States as well. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's actually, you know, it's one of those, uh, fairly significant sort of scientific, uh, exports of, of Canada. And it's. One of the reasons that it gets used is it was an early system. It came about in sort of the early 70s, and so it was one of the first out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also metric, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Americans. Thing. Yeah. yeah but, uh, and I have a lot of great American colleagues, and they do, they do amazing work. And the scientists always work in, in metric, as they would tell me. Yeah. But the public face of that system is you know, British thermal units per foot second, and, oh you know, all sorts of ridiculous units. Um, and so in a sort of scientific perspective, it's really easy for for the fire manager in Spain who uses metric. Yeah. And they use millimeters and degrees Celsius and kilometers per hour. They can use our system as well. Yeah. In, yeah. in addition to being a well-designed system, it's also metric. And, yeah. and because it's so focused on fuel moisture, that's part of why it's so transferable as well. It's, it's relevant to fire in a whole lot of different ecosystems and different forest types because mm-hmm. what's really important to flammability into ignitions and to the potential fire behavior really is how wet are the fuels how wet are the live fuels how wet are the dry dead fuels and Mm -hmm. so it captures that really well which makes it transferable to all these different systems so an fwi index value of 19 might be really high somewhere and it might be not so high somewhere else but as long as you have 
it in place in your local region and you get familiar with it and you learn what the indices mean to you and your ecosystem, it's super transferable. Right. And people can look that up too, I think. Right? Like it's on, I know at least in Alberta we have – you can just go on the government website and pop in the – Forest weather in, or fire weather index, and it tells you all the indices and what they mean. It shows you a map, like it's all colorful and looks yep. cool. <laughs> it's yeah, so it's yeah, it's a very that's cool that it. Uh, that I didn't know that it was like world renowned for being like or being you know noticed that like world renowned. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, it is it is the um, most widely used of, of any of them. Yeah. Um, and when you get into the particulars, you know, we have. If we say, okay, well, it's this hot, dry, and windy, yeah, that's that's the stuff that people use. Right. When you get into okay, if it's this particular amount of hot dry and windy weather Mm -hmm. in boreal spruce that's the canadian part you know that's the part that we'll say okay but some of the work that was done um sort of from the 60s through the 80s on okay i'm in a pine plantation yeah um that's the sort of stuff that gets used in a place like france or new zealand where they have pine plantations as well so you know some of the really simple uh the actual fuel models that then tell the firefighter how fast the fire is going to go. Yeah. Those, those components of those, you know, where comparable get used across the world as well. That's cool. Um, and it makes it really easy when we're, you know, talking uh, among scientists or removing yeah. um, fire management teams or firefighters uh, internationally, then you can talk the same language and it, yeah. it, it makes things a lot simpler. Yeah. No, for sure. It's kind of like the Linnaean names, right? It makes things. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's a really good comparison. Yeah. We can, we can always, you know, we'll have the local name. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll always have the, the Linnaean binomial. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's exactly. great. Yeah. No, for sure. So, all right. Per. So we kind of explained that a, a bit, I guess. Um, do you guys want to talk about, I, I imagine you do, uh, burn severity and kind of what that means? Sure. Yeah. We can talk about that a bit. Um, a lot of the research that I do, I'm really interested in the ecological impacts of fire. So for me, the way I would define burn severity or fire severity, they're kind of synonyms or, well, anyway, it's, you mean the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the way I would define it is ecological impacts from fire to, uh, vegetation and to soils as well. So you can think about, are the trees alive or dead after a fire and how much of the organic soil is remaining and, what has happened to understory vegetation and understory trees as well. So uh, in terms of why it's interesting to me, it has really long lasting impacts on the landscape in terms of what tree species and what vegetation comes back. And it can also be implicated in shifts from one vegetation community or one tree species uh, dominance to another one. So it has really interesting lasting effects on the landscape and in the forest that we see many years after fire as well. So I think it's, really important and really interesting to study because it tells us a lot about sort of the future of the landscape many years after that fire. Yeah. Well, yeah, reading your paper, looking at, you're saying that it changes the heterogeneity of the landscape and can favor some species over others, right? Based on the, on the severity. So I guess, uh, yeah, a lot of people don't know, don't really understand that the organic gets burnt, right? So they think that you walk into the, the forest or whatever, and that it's just they don't realize that after a fire, a very severe fire, that there's, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 centimeters of peat or not peat, but organic matter that's gone. And now it's just mineral soil and the impact that has on tree species growing back. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so say we had a, a really bad fire in a, let's say it was like a, a full spruce stand, right? Like a, a Mesic spruce stand. So an upland stand and it burnt totally like, really severely. It's all just mineral soil now. Like what, what, what would be the impacts of that on like the next generation? Do you think? Yeah. Well, mineral seedbeds generally are actually pretty good for establishment of conifer seedlings. Okay. So for a spruce seedling, it actually makes it 
pretty likely that the spruce would reestablish, and okay. they're kind of adapted to that with recurrent wildfires. But if we're getting more music, more wet, yeah. um, it would definitely be a pretty big shift for that ecosystem to remove a lot of peat or a really, really huge organic right. layer. And then there's also the impacts of the intensity of the fire as well in the canopy because spruce are semi-serotonous, serotonous meaning um, like adapted to wildfire. And so mm. you can think about um, jack pine or lodgepole pine that have those really tightly sealed cones that have a lot of pitch and so on, and they need the heat of the fire to open them. So yeah. we describe black spruce, not so much white spruce, uh, as being semi-serotonous in that they have these really big cone balls in the top yeah. and, and it can... The seed viability can remain through combustion as long as it's not too intense. So the level of the combustion in the canopy matters because if it's too intense, the seed viability over time will, after the fire is, is quite a bit lower and the density of seedling recruitment can therefore be lower as well. Okay. So it's both the overstory and understory impacts that matter. And then although that exposed mineral soil seabed is really great for reestablishment of conifers, um, it might also sort of remove a little bit of their competitive advantage because they are heavier seeded species than some of our deciduous trees like mm. aspen or um, birch or so on. And yeah. those seeds don't establish so well when there's some organic layer remaining. Whereas uh, if you've got this nice big open mineral soil, they tend to sort of compete with the conifers as well. Um, mm. They don't have the advantage of the thicker layer where the heavier seeded trees can establish. So it's really a complicated mix of all these different things. Yeah. And you have to sort of like, you need to look at the context around the site. So right. how close are they to the nearest seed source for these other tree species? And what was the ecosystem before? Was it a peatland or was it a more of a music site? And yeah. are they white spruce or black spruce? So there's all these different interacting effects on how that could uh, influence the post-fire recruitment and the future cohort that you're going to get of those trees. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, it's a, yeah. It's obviously it's a complicated situation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> surprise. Yeah, the environment's not like black and white. <laughs> well, spruce are black and white. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> Tree joke. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> I'm glad we went there. Not too many dad jokes on this podcast. Yet, no, so well, somebody yeah, we can we can start. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess in 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 the paper you're talking about maybe in these heavy burns favoring so it'll be favoring conifer species where there's high burn severity over deciduous or it really depends yeah, if it's a really really severe yeah. fire so it's really been suggested that that's more likely to favor deciduous species okay. because if it's a really intense fire um again like i said it could be bad for both the serotonous and the semi-serotonous species so if right, it's, if course, it's too yeah. intense it's going to kill the seeds that are available um, and then you're just waiting on a seed source to blow something in. That's yeah, gonna, there's yeah. usually a few still in situ seed sources, but right. um, it it does matter, especially for white spruce if there's live seed sources. But for for jack pine and for black spruce as well, if it's too intensive a fire, it actually can lower the density mm -hmm. of the seedlings um, that or recruit post fire because of the seed viability. But in terms of like, does it favor one or the other? Yeah, it, it just kind of depends. And so, if it's if it was a pure spruce stand before, mm -hmm. and then there's it's all burned to the mineral soil, and there's no competing aspen nearby or whatever, I'm imagining the spruce are probably gonna yeah. reestablish pretty well and not yeah. have any problems. And also, they're pretty shade tolerant. So if the aspen do establish, as long as they're there in the undergrowth, they like they do their thing over time, and they yeah. eventually transition into being more dominant. But uh, there's also influences on the post-fire recruitment from sort of fire return intervals and fire history. And a lot of research has shown that, especially for black spruce, but for um, uh, jack pine and so on as well from some of the work that we've done, if the fire intervals are too short, there isn't enough time for those trees to produce healthy seed crops. Oh, yeah. So in that case, 
uh, they're just not going to establish the number of seedlings that they would have in the past if they had been an older stand at the time of burning. And then once again, you get issues with competition with these aspen or other deciduous species that can establish really well. Right. And if the seedling density was quite low for this other species, you can lead to a transition to another one. So there's interacting, whoops, sorry, <laughs> interacting <laughs> effects of uh, fire history and burn severity that all relate to what kind of tree species community comes back. Right, of course. Yeah, no, it's super complicated. It's, it, it, I was just, I'm thinking about it from more of a, I guess I'm thinking about it from like a landscape perspective. And like, is there a, I mean, you could argue with climate change, we're expecting lots of changes in the, in the boreal forest. But I mean, with fire, I wonder, compounding with climate change and that, not, we don't have to get into this, this is totally off topic. <laughs> but that's all I'm thinking about is what can, I'm just trying to think about what we would expect to see happen in the future, right? Yeah. it's... Like, but I guess it's, it's again, it depends. So who yeah, knows? <laughs> it, it does depend. Um, certainly it's, I don't know, nothing's a given, right? Yeah. But it's really been suggested that, especially in the part of the boreal forest that we're in, the boreal plain or sort of the southern boreal forest, we are probably going to see increasing dominance of deciduous species like aspen. Gotcha. Um, for one thing, the climate just might not be so ideal for the establishment of those spruce seedlings if right. they're there. And although jack pine can do really, really well with fire it's totally adapted to it and it requires bright light as well so it's it does great when there's fire on the landscape and when yeah. there's warm climates if you have fires burning at such short intervals there's no viable seed source yeah so it's there's been quite a bit of work done suggesting that we may be eventually seeing a transition to a more deciduous dominated mm. stands and people are, are seeing it happening now i'd say most of the research has been done more so in alaska but it's been starting to being looked at here as well in the Northwest Territories in Northern Alberta. Um, and I, I, yeah, I'd say we don't essentially know for sure that exactly, exactly what will happen, but it's really looking like we can expect more deciduous species and right. that fire is probably going to play a role in that on this landscape. Yeah, you'd think so. Well, especially with deciduous species, if, if that is the case and say they become more prominent in the landscape, you'd see a more fire-resistant forest totally it's right? a really interesting so, feedback um, yeah. and then at the same time we have some landscapes where there's there's not even really deciduous seed sources so yeah. we've we've there's a couple of sites that we've looked at that reburned with 10 years or fewer between fires and not just sort of you know oh there's a little surface fire and then it burned again later it's right. stand replacing fire and then a subsequent essentially stand replacing but there wasn't even really a stand yet <laughs> fire again yeah. and in those ones their seeds can only establish for the deciduous species via like aerial sources are blowing right, in so no rhizomes left yeah there's yeah. no rhizomes at all yeah. and and so in those cases it's like maybe going to turn into a shrubland which actually or a grassland which yeah. can be more flammable and can actually lead to really fast repeat cycling mm -hmm. of burning and start eating away at the edges so there's all these different angles that it could that it could feed back to but yeah. i think that the, it's really interesting that we are expecting that if we're getting more deciduous establishment it's probably going to lead to a f more fire resistant landscape and those shorter intervals of re-burning are quite rare so we do know that it takes quite a long time for fuel to accumulate and so there's certain there is a certain resistance conferred by an initial fire to then experience another fire but climate also plays a f <laughs> plays a role in whether or not those fuels are available to burn even yeah. if there isn't a huge volume yeah i wonder how much like how much of that we have happening where you actually have like a total change of like, say you have whatever a pine stand that burns so severely that now you just have, uh, well, I can't remember what the, word, the name of the word, but you just have like asters and stuff coming back up. Like, you know what I mean? Like we're just kind of deserty. We see a little bit of that 
in the the Richardson fire. So 2011. Oh, yeah. So was, 20, 2011, everyone got caught yeah. up, rightly so, in Slave Lake. I was actually, um, I was on that fire. You were on no Richardson. Yeah. yeah. So and, and, we were repping around on the helicopters, taking uh, sprinklers off of those remote cabins in the woods. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I got to see pretty much the entire fire. It was interesting. And, and, wow. and, you know, a fire just about the size of the Fort McMurray 2016 fire. Um, and a really interesting fire in the, in the sense that people thought, you know, after Fort McMurray, how could this happen? You know, uh, it's always and, and it's like, well, yeah. you know, the Richardson fire was was five years earlier, was only about sixty or eighty kilometers to the north, but the fire importantly went north rather than going into town. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but but regardless, burned a completely different landscape uh, than the the area around Fort McMurray is really actually quite beautiful with all the valleys, a lot of really rich white spruce, mm. aspen, mixed forest. Richardson is all sand dunes, and anyone yeah. that's been up there, quadding or helicopter or whatever you're doing, um, you you notice the amazing amount of sand dunes there. And and some work that we did after the 2011 fire uh, showed that in those young stands. So there's a a part of that Richardson fire in 2011 actually also burned in 1981. Oh, okay. In one of the other big fire seasons that is long since forgotten, but we had a massive fire year Western Canada in 81, and and high intensity fire there in the stands that were only 30 years old led to very few seedlings and a lot of grass and sort of little herbs and asters and and not a lot of pine density coming in so so we do have some areas and i mean that's a really coarse sand so the aspen doesn't want to be there it's too dry spruce can't live there it's too dry it's just pine yeah. yeah and so it is an area that is just sort of sand dune so it i is, forget it is there is... black spruce in there too really. uh if it's if it's anywhere near the stabilized dunes it tends to take a long time if you're going to get any spruce you need to build up a really heavy pine needle layer to build a bit of duff and oh a bit of okay moisture. just to get them but okay. if it's really thin um if it's just sand it's really just, just pine. a pine yeah. and you know for sure, that's not a lot of Alberta, but when you get into Saskatchewan and areas, you get more sand dunes and that sort of really sandy soil. And, uh, you know, it really is a, a bit of a caution, point of caution that, you know, we we think of pine as being this really fire-adapted species, and it certainly is. But when the, these young stands are, are quite vulnerable, and what we see in areas like Wood Buffalo, like you're talking about, is that it turns into this grassland habitat, which is great for bison, mm-hmm. perhaps, uh, but, uh, you know, not great if you're trying to have a community wood supply yeah i'd say essentially sort of we don't really know how not necessarily how often short interval fires are happening but what you were asking about which is really intense fires and, yeah. and potential sort of transitions or shifts between vegetation communities and we kind of we just don't really know because we don't map severity for every fire mm-hmm. in canada in the in the states they actually have an awesome program called monitoring trends in bird severity and they do remotely sense severity mapping for every large fire okay. um, we don't do that in canada so we just sort of don't know how frequently or or the aerial extent but just observationally i'd say it tends to be pretty small areas but the ecological impacts are really high in those small areas so it's kind of an interesting situation where at a landscape scale the frequency in the total area is probably quite small but then the the relative impact is really high yeah but but the possibilities there in the forest yeah in the sense that if this happens there is a high consequence Right now, we're fortunate enough that it's only some small pockets. But uh, if we continue to see fire years such as 2011 and 2016, but also 
2014 in the Northwest Territories, 2015 in Saskatchewan and Northern Alberta. 2017 in BC. 2017 yeah. in BC. You know, you start thinking, okay, well, when is the last time we had a really quiet fire year? In in some way, you know, somewhere in Western Canada has been really uh, very active in, in terms of uh, fire behavior and, yep. and fire burned area for most of the last seven years. Yeah, so you could not... argue that the provinces go through individual slow fire years, yep. but in Western Canada, yeah, it doesn't really happen. Yeah. Exactly. Sort of. Manitoba's been a little quiet, um, although they've had also they some had a busy pretty big year too. this year too. Yeah, they got it got hidden in the news. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know, when you take the sort of west of Canada as a whole, there hasn't been a lot of opportunities for for quiet time. So it's just sort of saying that the capacity of the forest for the really high impact burns that mm. are um, stripping away the possibility of the future forest. I mean, it's one thing to look at a burn stand, and if you're someone who lives in the forest and studies the forest, then you know, okay, well, this will come back. Yeah. Normally, that's what you would think. But uh, it will be a very different mindset when you have areas. And, and we, and knowing lots of people in Fort Smith and the, the fires that they had around there in 2014, people are very used to fire in that community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was quite, you know, when they were surprised and when the Parks Canada staff and the territorial staff were surprised mm-hmm. at what a fire did, that made us take note. Because people who... Yeah deal with fire every day there would say did you see the moonscape you know (laughs) we're just not really used to that and these are people that are living and breathing forests and conservation and fire management in a wilderness setting and they're saying like the fire did that and that starts to make your head scratch a little bit and and it drove a bunch of the 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 research as well Mm -hmm. but it's uh it's quite something when the the fire like that does something that's very surprising yeah and it means that the the capacity of the forest is there to change yeah maybe we're not seeing that everywhere just yet but the mm-hmm. the potential is there yeah for sure well that's an inter- very interesting point about um well i was that uh, do you guys uh look at uh, ed strudzik's book firestorm have you seen that yet uh, i'm in it <laughs> i just picked it up actually i was at his book launch or whatever mm-hmm. and i just started reading it but uh at the book launch he was talking about um well i mean this is something that like as forest whatever foresters all that kind of stuff you kind of know about already but for people who don't know uh when we've been suppressing fire for so long right that we have changed the landscape and and that maybe we actually have more old growth now than we historically would have had and that suppressing this fire i wonder if suppressing fire for so long might have caused uh like an abnormal amount of like of of duff layer mm-hmm. and abnormal amount of of fuel out there existing so that now in in relation with climate change and increased everything else we are also having increased amount of of uh fuel to burn and therefore that is causing these big catastrophic really severe fires mm-hmm. right i don't know it's just an interesting thought i had i wonder how much of this old growth that we have now did we actually have back you know 120 years ago when they were, weren't really suppressing fire i wonder what what those forests look like i have no idea right but yeah, it's an interesting thought anyways. Yeah, and I, and I I think the Americans would have a lot more data and that's a it's a very strong narrative in American forestry and fire science and wildfire management. You hear that a lot about fuel buildup and suppression. Yeah. Um and I agree that we definitely increased our suppression capacity sort of from the 50s and 60s particularly mm-hmm. onwards when we had aerial fire suppression. But when you have um you know, a, a fire like a Fort McMurray, 
But then people start listening back, and especially the old fire dogs, you know, the, the guys that started in the 60s and 70s yeah. that are still floating around sometimes. Good old they'll, boys. <laughs> they'll remind you that there's always been these big fire years, like 1981, like I was talking about earlier, Yeah, that burned huge swaths. Um, I think it was 88 or something like that um, in, in Manitoba. I didn't appreciate how much area burned there until one of our more recently retired scientists, Kelvin Hirsch, uh, who gave me this sweet... Uh, Canadian Forest Service belt buckle. That <laughs> it's a podcast, so this is useless. But I have this great fire science belt buckle. Thanks, Kelvin. Um, he would remind you that a huge area burned in '88, and anyone who was around Slave Lake in 1968 would tell you, "Oh my God, we had this massive fire mm-hmm. in that year." And then also 2001, and, yep. and fire, so yeah. with our lightning-driven fires, I I agree that uh, we we definitely can have a fuel buildup at a location but you know i don't know if we've ever had as our forests grow a lot s- slower here in canada so yeah. i'm not sure whether we've had the time between you know when do we really when did we really yeah. start effectively suppressing fires yeah and uh, do our forests really grow fast enough that mm-hmm. it's going to make a difference and in 1981 when everything burned when it was so dry it was sort of like a 2017 british columbia fire season Everything's dry. Everything's yeah. burning. How effective is our fire management? And that's a lot of that burned area. So I agree that accumulating fuels next to a community because they're aesthetically nice, you know, is not a good idea versus, you know, sort of fire smart practices. But at a landscape scale with our, with our lightning fires that are sort of everywhere and the lightning fires are very opportunistic. They'll take mm-hmm. any dry landscape and yeah. when it's dry enough, everything will burn and in the spring as well. With uh, with our human caused spring fires in, in Alberta, yeah, I don't I don't know yeah. how much of and I don't I don't see a lot you know I think it's a bit of a one of the you know research uh, gaps or one of our, our problems that I think in the U S they have a much firmer grasp on that because they have these big pine trees and the grass underneath and mm-hmm. the, you know there's a really strong narrative of okay if we burn the grass and the little conifers underneath this massive ponderosa pine, mm-hmm. then we'll suppress, you know, we'll keep the fuel loads down and we'll keep the fires close to the ground and low intensity. But yeah, I, I, you yeah. know, I don't think in the boreal we have a good definitive uh, answer about that. At, no. least that's, that's, at least that's my opinion. Yeah, I, I was going to say know. it's super ecosystem dependent. Like I would agree. I bet if we went back far enough in the literature, we could find some sort of baseline studies about fuel load or carbon or something from like, long enough ago that we could get some idea in the boreal but absolutely this has happened in canada but in places like the mountain parks or Mm -hmm. british columbia or like Kelowna area of bc where they did have ponderosa pines with surface fire regimes and so on and so in those areas we do see this and people are working to correct those right so in jasper national park and in kootenay i want to say and Mm -hmm. banff all all of them are engaged in introducing prescribed burning and fuel management to reduce fuel loads um, in sort of valley bottom areas that used to have a, p- a partially human altered fire regime yeah, that has been altered partially because we excluded fire from the parks, but also because we removed people who lived in the parks. Yeah. Um, and, and those changes have occurred there and in the, and fuel buildup is a serious concern in those environments. But in the boreal forest, even though we have gotten great at protecting people it's only more recently that people have been all over the landscape mm-hmm. as yeah. well. And so I, don't, I I agree with Dan. I just don't know if it's really happened in the boreal. Yeah. But it, it'd be interesting if someone thing. could I mean, how do we figure know, right? it out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's not, no shortage of trying. I mean, we've collected 
you know, many hundreds of fire scars and we have ideas about fire frequency. Yeah, the refugia studies and stuff, but they only tell you bits and pieces. Yeah, and, little, yeah. Little, little, little anecdotes. And, and, you know, one of, the, one of the things that we don't have in the north of Canada is really large systematic records of where the big fires have been. Uh, one of our, our colleagues, Marc Parisien, has done some great work in Quebec working on very systematic going and finding all the the pine trees that have evidence of older fires and then very systematically tracking through the past 300 years where the big fires have been. Really? Interesting. It takes a lot of work. Yeah, we haven't okay. done that yet in the northwest of Canada. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, the things that make me think that maybe, yeah, we haven't been very effective in fire suppression, you know, for as long as we think, is that if you read some of the historical literature, Steve Pine wrote this amazing book about the fire history of Canada, a bit of a social history of fire. And he talks about, you know, the Dominion Forest Service in 1920 had steamboats. But all they yeah. could do is, and, and there's a great, amazing history of steamboats and riverboats in Alberta. All they could do is put out uh, sort of campfires that were left at the shoreline. Like, there was no capacity. And even into the 50s, uh, uh, Cordy Teamster wrote a book about uh, the, the fires in the in the 50s in northern northwestern Alberta. Yeah, the Chinchaga yeah. fire. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. 1953 or whatever. Yeah. And even in 1953, which was not that long ago, you know, my parents were just born. They, you know, even there, there was no railroad. There was no highway. There's not, you know, the, the Forest Service there only was able to defend a few miles on either side of the Peace River. Yeah. Everything else was basically, and that fire burned uh, an area probably almost three times the size of the Fort McMurray fire. Yeah. So, you know. It's a big one for sure. There's a lot of capacity. And I totally agree. Ellen makes a great point about very specific landscapes in the mountains where we have excellent photographic evidence and where we shifted the mode of human habitation from one of a lot of valley bottom burning to increase elk and bison grazing to one of tourism and everyone wants to see all the trees, mm-hmm. but, but, uh, you know, I don't, uh, yeah. In the Northern Saskatchewan, or if you're, you know, a hundred kilometers Northwest of Fort Smith, Northwest territories, I'm not sure how much we've ever done to that landscape I, Yeah, I in terms of suppressing In fire. the paper that you were talking about, the Aon et al. one that Mark co-authored, um, I think they did f- detect sort of a point in time where suppression started having an effect on mm-hmm. the landscape but it was pretty recent and it was only in their southern part of their study area. And again, it's northern Quebec, so it has a vast area in the north that is accessible but is not at all densely uh, populated. And I think they did sort of detect a point in time where it diverged. And so maybe we're starting to make that happen. And it would be really interesting to, like, yeah, just compare that to that. Yeah, but, you know, southern Quebec has a lot of maple and it has a lot of people and a lot of lakes. And it also has a lot of forestry, so that landscape they altered the landscape flammability by removing trees and so on as well. So there's a whole lot of effects tangled up in there. Yeah, no, no, I I agree that, you know, there are places that we can detect the influence of fire suppression for sure. Um, But I'm just thinking of the the big boreal landscapes (laughs) where the lightning fires get away from you, the sort of slave lake and north environment. Right. Um, Yeah, I'm just not sure whether, you know, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, try and we do and we yeah. we protect a lot of communities every year and, and and the fire management in canada does amazing things um but i think it's a lesson for the future where you know even now fires can get big and away from us and what's oh. that going to mean in the future when there's more people out there 
and we have a, a warmer climate. And if, even if we have the same amount of lightning, um, hopefully we can reap some of the benefits of this younger forest that we've been creating in the last few years yeah. from the fires that we have had. Yeah. And hopefully that, that, that uh, response where the newer forest is less flammable will give us some breathing room because it's, it's been really hard for the fire management agencies yeah. in Canada for the last, I mean, number of years, but the last five years in particular, one province has sort of been hit really hard mm -hmm. every year. Yeah, no, for sure. It's definitely a crazy amount of money that goes into that for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it's you know just just an interesting hypothetical, I guess, is all I was thinking about. But yeah, like to your point about uh, like forestry, uh, I asked this to uh, who did I ask it to? Was it David Price? I forget. Somebody else that was on. We we're talking about whether or not uh, we think that forestry and oil and gas exploration, mineral exploration, has kind of supplemented that missing fire disturbance. You hmm. know what I mean? It's that it's just another interesting hypothetical. I don't have the answer. I don't expect you guys to have the answer. It's just kind of a thought, right? Because like we can't, we have, we don't really know how how much we're cutting or, or relative to how much fire there was or whatever. But yeah, it's interesting. Um, I guess you were talking about remote sensing a little bit and uh, how that relates to uh, like you the burn severity and fire mapping and how, why fire mapping is important with remote sensing and how it can help. Uh, I don't know if you want to get into that a little bit or. Sure. Yeah. That's in terms of how tools available to firefighting agencies in Canada have improved over time. Remote sensing has made a big difference for people, both for fire detection and later for fire mapping. Yeah. Um, we have satellites like MODIS or VIRS or VERS, depending on however you want to pronounce it, that um, detect hotspots on the Earth's surface. Well, it's done so, by satellites. Satellites, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so those ones um, are really helpful because they're polar orbiters? No, they're the other ones. Yeah, they're polar orbiters, yeah, right? Yeah, but they're so, really frequent. So twice a day, they'll come over um, early afternoon and then in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. oh, so yeah. I thought it was always done with uh, like a fixed wing or something, but... Well, okay. we have that capability as well. And right. there are satellites that can do infrared as well. Yeah. Um, but but those ones are really useful just for sort of immediately detecting like, hey, there's a new hotspot there. We didn't know about that. Let's send a plane out to look at it or let's send a helicopter or yeah. let's drive out there. Um, so those are great for detection. And they're also useful for mapping fire progression if you're interested in it at, for fires that were necessarily not necessarily a management priority, for example. So right. in areas like the Northwest Territories where you have huge unpopulated regions where if you're fighting other fires closer to communities you're not going to prioritize that fire so you're yeah. not flying around it every day to map it you can go back and use these hotspots to map progression over time in areas where we weren't able to get detailed maps while the fire was burning so that's really useful and interesting and then in terms of mapping severity and so on we can use lidar or um polar sar and Dipole pull. I don't know. Oh gosh, a bunch of other we, acronyms. We can use uh, a whole. Yeah, radar. Let us use a whole bunch of satellite acronyms. radar. Yeah. So, um, so the things you know to to the listening audience to make sure that we're not going all over. So we can use lasers that are in planes, <laughs> sort of laser range finding in planes, which is which we call lidar. Um, most of the, and you can even fly aerial photo classic aerial photography to map fires. Yeah. As well, and Alberta still does a fair bit of that too. Yeah. Um, like we, I said that's what that's what yeah yeah so here. so Alberta's unique in that they still would after a big fire ask an air photo company to fly over and get really really detailed and that's where the high that's when you're mapping the disturbance to high value timber yeah maybe British Columbia does that but in in the big territories or national parks we'll just use a satellite uh, that flies over every two weeks or so that will give us maybe. Um, 
30 meters or 100 foot sort of pixels and that's that's good enough for for a big fire like mm-hmm. that oh, okay so, so you can you, i was say you can use things like that to look at the change or the relative change from pre-fire conditions to post-fire so with multispectral oh, okay. imagery you can capture the reflectivity of near infrared and mid infrared or greenness or a whole bunch of different metrics there's uh, soil moisture there's a lot of things that you can detect from satellites and you can compare the pre-fire to the post-fire as long as the phenological or seasonal conditions are similar right um and you could do the same thing with radar as well so mm-hmm. look at sort of my pre-fire heights of trees versus my post-fire heights or uh, density of canopy and so on as well ah, so okay. they're all really useful and they provide a lot more detailed mapping than we were capable of doing in the past well yeah, we were okay. capable of it if you had the money but <laughs> if you did not have the money or if you had a huge territory to manage we weren't mm-hmm. able to map residual stands or unburned stands or even just like partial mortality for example we weren't able to do that without really extensive um going out there yeah going out there and either doing it in the field or or flying it and so now we can get these really detailed fire perimeters which is really helpful for people because it gives you a better idea of the actual area burned and it can also sort of capture hey all of this burned but in this area the, the crowns are completely consumed and there's probably exposed mineral soil versus in this area, hey, the trees are dead, but, you know, I can see that there's probably still some organic soil there. Right. So you can capture these gradients in the changes as well with remote sensing. Gotcha. What was the fraction of, for the big 2014 fires, I'm trying to recall the number that you came up with, of the area, you know, if you have 100,000 hectares of a, you know, big big fire like that, but a really big area, a really big fraction of that was actually either low severity where the big trees, the overstory didn't die or even unburned. Was that, mm-hmm. was that fraction yeah. again? I can't recall. For unburned, I think we came up with around 15%, um, which is not a lot out of 100. But if mm-hmm. you have millions of hectares burned, which was the case <laughs> in that year, that's actually mm-hmm. a pretty substantial area. And that mm-hmm. was just unchanged. So that's not even partial mortality or low mortality stands as well. I think it was something higher, like 25 or 30, if you include those as well. So... They do make up a pretty substantial proportion of the total area burned, but the way that we've mapped fires in the past where you sort of, you know, you got in a helicopter, you turned on a GPS, you flew around the fire, that's the fire. Yeah. It gives you a pretty different uh, understanding of how much of that landscape has been changed in terms of stem mortality for sure. Right. As well as depth of the depth of the seedbed burnt and everything else too. So yeah, yeah there's a and, whole lot of stuff you can look at. And some of these low severity stands that we've walked through, you know, within a few years of fire someone like ours you know ourselves who who does that for a living we walk around and assess fire severity and ecological impacts and try to reconstruct how intense the fire was how big the flames were sometimes you have to really look for the evidence of the fire in these in the in the low severity which is not not everywhere of course there's lots of areas that are you know the trees have torched and all all the foliage is gone but there's a number of areas that you know you have to look around a little bit and you're like oh wait no i see some charcoal over here or there's just you know, just a few inch tall sort of charcoal burned area just around the rim of some of the trees. Like, right. you know, for these huge fires, and, and this is like Fort McMurray when we flew over the Fort McMurray fire uh, in the fall of 2016. Yeah. Uh, actually, just as the color, as the leaves were turning, so you could, you could actually really quite nicely see the unburned area within the Fort McMurray fire. And this goes the same for any of the really big fire seasons you have these huge burned areas and it's it is pretty you know even a third of an area that's either unburned or really low severity that it looks the same from the air or as you drive by yeah you know it really is actually uh impressive how much 
of the forest is only either not touched or or just slightly altered by fire, even though it's we put in our burned area statistics right. and we'll say, oh, yeah, we burned an area the size of Prince Edward Island. But when you start saying, well, okay, you know, maybe a quarter of that, you wouldn't know that there was a fire there because the aspen trees are still living and yeah. maybe a few died. But it's it's uh, that sort of low severity fire, low intensity fires is is actually a pretty useful ecological process. And, uh, you know, only happens when the fires get really big yeah. and uh, away from communities. Because if the fire is, you know, just crawling and it's near community, okay, well, put it out. Yeah, we can put it out with hand tools. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, when this fire is nowhere near any values, you know, and it's only going to do this process of maybe killing a few of the weaker trees in the forest anyway and help open up the stand and bring a, a really sort of mixed and a new generation of trees to be able to seed in amongst the really large and mature ones. Yeah. It really brings about a d- more dynamic forest. Right. Uh, and and it's, um, it's not that field. And actually, in, in that Ed Struzik book you talked about, I, I'm not quoted in it. You know, yeah. and I'm, I'm, only a little bit, <laughs> I'm only a little bit bitter, but my, my claim to fame there is, and I'm not actually mentioned, but it's the back of my head in this really dramatic scene with Ellen <laughs> that took the photo. And this is the back of my head uh, in my, my uh, chainsaw pack. And we're just in this like black field with like sand and big black charred logs and nothing and that's a year after the fire and there's not a sprig of grass or like anything in it it, that sort of moonscape as the locals call it around there is so far from the majority of what happens but i think gets rather close to what people imagine that, that will look like for a long time yeah uh and that goes it goes back to uh once again, back to Fort McMurray, a lot of these sort of fire stories do. My my cousin, who's from Niagara Falls, I'm from Hamilton, you know, Ontario kids. We've never seen a forest fire before I started working <laughs> out west. And and he lived in Fort McMurray and still does um, for many years. And I, I asked him, like, you know, after the fire, he was down and we were, we were chatting about he never really we, he knew, we never, never even talked about forest fires. Because yeah. why, why would he? He's an so, oil and gas guy. And yeah. So I was like. Of course, there's fires everywhere. Like, didn't you see all the the 1982 Mariana Lakes fire and the 1995? <laughs> and I was listing listing all the fires yeah. that you drive through on the 63 to to get up there. And he's like, those are fires, and it's like, yeah. how, how would you know? How would anyone yeah. know? Because the trees have come back, and there's aspen that are 20 feet tall. So what's yeah. the big deal? Like, you wouldn't know that it's a forest now that yeah. burned in 1995 <laughs> or 1982 yeah. or whatever that is, right? So yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, this this sort of patchwork that is built in from these big natural fires is it's unless you're unless you're paid to look at it, yeah. uh, you know, it is really invisible to most people. Yeah. And it'll be really interesting in another 20 years, especially with a high turnover city like Fort McMurray. How many people, if you quizzed them, you know, if you on the south drive into town where, you know, both areas, uh, both sides of the road were burned. I wonder in 20 years if you had a flashcard and you said, <laughs> Okay, did this spot burn? You know, yeah. whether people would really know. And if you pulled up the the photograph yeah. of the forest, you know, black, and it, you know, it's, they wouldn't see the that you know the little black bits of old logs that are oh, laid yeah. down on the ground amongst the thirty foot high aspen trees, right? Well, the so forest is amazing. The, the dynamics and the complexity and the and everything that's going on. I think most people, yeah, they they walk into a forest like you said and they see, oh, it's a nice nice stand and it's you know it's got. There's trees and there's undergrowth and there's there's squirrels and there's whatever and they don't see that there's you know maybe there's a log from when it was like selectively cut seventy years ago That's or right. yeah. maybe there's some burn scars from a, a 
big fire that came through or some 300 one one single 300 year old tree standing mm-hmm. in the middle of a bunch of younger stuff and they don't really put together and i don't expect them to that's nope. not that's just you know what i mean that's just that's our passion that's not theirs but mm-hmm. yeah it's it's i think most people miss that kind of that that complexity and that i guess the the beauty of all that right and how that all interrelates it's pretty interesting for sure yeah yeah and it's one of the things that i noticed uh you know if if you have the privilege to fly in a helicopter over the boreal forest, you do really appreciate how diverse, especially after a fire where, mm. you know, there's black areas, there's green areas that areas that are really severely burned and you can see all that patchwork and the mosaic, oh, yeah. but only when you're in the air and how mm-hmm. many Canadians get a chance to fly in a helicopter or a plane at low altitude and, until you really, and, and the satellite doesn't really do it justice. Too um, low resolution. Yeah. yeah, I don't. And, you know, maybe the newer ones that are getting better and new these, you know, these little CubeSats and all sorts yeah. of stuff. Maybe they'll eventually get to the point where we can uh, better convey that message off to the, to the public. Sure. And we're, yeah. we're not really good at that yet. Uh, you know, we, we, we try and, and uh, hopefully maybe, and maybe maybe that's the role for drones. Maybe we should get the drone people up there and flying <laughs> around when when the fire operations are done. Yeah. To <laughs> sort of start seeing that patchwork a little bit. I don't know what the answer is, but um, yeah. certainly getting people exposed to the idea of that that mosaic of fire. And and I think the messaging is there yeah. from provinces like Alberta when they're talking about the ecological role of fire, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, obviously if it's next to the town, that's a very different thing. But when it's in the Caribou Mountains and the nearest value is 300 kilometers away, do you really want everyone rushing to put that out and taking away the capacity to put out those new start fires that are going to be closer? And yeah, it seems like we're going more to a let it burn strategy if we can, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the Ontario term that I really like is the appropriate response. And I think that's sort of the best. Not yeah. only is it most scientific and, and maybe the best wording, mm-hmm. um, I, the, but it really speaks to... You know, we have the tools like the fire detection towers and the aerial patrols and, and the satellites that help us assess. And we have the tools to say, OK, well, how big is this fire going to get, do we think, given the weather forecast? And we can then make informed decisions yeah. and not just chase smoke. Yeah. And I think that's the really important <laughs> yeah. part, because then we can say, <clears throat> you know, these past fires didn't get big over here because we have a good knowledge of what the the forest is like. And so, yeah. OK, we're going to. It's like triage, right? It's like you're in a hospital and there's triage mm-hmm. when there's a yeah. lot of lightning. Yep. And by learning about the pattern and the size of these fires when we aren't suppressing them, so learning from the really remote areas like the Northwest Territories um, and in parts of northern Alberta where it's appropriate, we can then, uh, and this is what our scientific job is, to then help provide the tools and the knowledge so that the that duty officer who's sitting at the desk that has to make that decision, okay, well, do we bring the helicopter there or do we bring it over yep. here? And any time that we can help them make the decision that, okay, well, this fire is not going to threaten anything for either ever or, you know, the likely, it's going to have to get to a certain point before it's going to, we're even going to consider it a threat. Yeah. And that gives some breathing room so that the crews can stay on alert to catch that fire that's next to town rather than being off in some remote area. And so I think that's the real value of a lot of this Northern work is that it helps us look at the the natural features of fire and that can hopefully help bring a bit more confidence for when things get really busy like in a british columbia mm-hmm. where the resources are limited they're tapped out across the country you've brought in the australians and the mexicans and america's all full 
of, uh, and they're, yeah. they're adaptive for fire capacity as well. Yeah. <clears throat> and when our resources are stretched, that's when these decisions need to get made. And that's where these tools and learning from these, these free burning fires where they're still watched, but they're, you know, we're not putting the air show out there and all the helicopters and the planes. We can yeah. learn a lot from these Northern fires that help us when it's really dramatically busy. Yeah. Uh, in the bad years, yeah. in in the 2017 in British Columbia, yeah. and and being comfortable with making those decisions, and and I'm not a fire manager, I don't make those those decisions, <laughs> but the more we can observe the patterns and the processes in the these northern landscapes, um, can only help that is sort of support the decisions and, and the lessons learned from the remote fires for when it's really busy in yeah. the south. Yeah, no, absolutely for sure. No, it's a yeah, it's such a complicated subject. Everything is just. I can't imagine trying to, if you were somebody listening to this episode with like no understanding of fire whatsoever, it might be a bit daunting. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I apologize to the listeners. No, I, yeah. I, I, I th- honestly, when I first started this, I started with the assumption that like the first episode and like slowly I would be like adding information in. So okay. like, I'm not, okay. I don't have to like go back and like explain what la- ladder fuel is or something. Mm-hmm, right. But mm-hmm. no, it's kind of funny, but anyways, um, Cut up on an hour almost already. Man, we're flying. Um, uh, did you want to talk about uh, the paper, kind of the, the the situation leading up to the Fort McMurray fire and yeah, like, climatically yeah, yeah, yeah. what was going on there and, and why it was such a such a crazy fire that just got out of control before they even had time to get it under control? Yeah, and and, and you know, there's a whole narrative about the the suppression activities during the fire and and uh, I, I wasn't there. So, if, you know, in, in, in the province of Alberta, and, and actually I think they did a really good job in the, in the case of transparency. If you want to sort of blow by blow um, analysis of what went on in the Fort McMurray fire, it is public and it came out yeah. last summer. Yeah. And so maybe we can, we can put up the link for that. For sure. So I'll spare people the blow by blow analysis. <laughs> uh, I, I was there sort of um, within the week of the fire, helping to sort of look at some of the fire patterns and the fire behavior and stuff like that. Uh, and I won't really dive into it too much. Uh, you know, I think what people do know is, is obviously what we talked about earlier is that, that really, uh, the dramatic sort of scale of the fire relative to the scale of the community, mm-hmm. um, that fire went through town in basically a day and then just kept on burning for weeks after. So this fire was so many times larger than the city of Fort McMurray, which is not small. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what, what the early narratives, and this is sort of the motivation for, the, for this paper that we did, right? There was a lot of um, sort of very natural uncertainty about what the big drivers were yeah. of, of the really extreme fire behavior that we saw. And the reason that I got sent up with the province to join their, their team and look at fire behavior was that, you know, we thought, oh, you know, these aspen trees, which I don't have any leaves, um, but they had only just the little buds, the little spring buds. And, right. and there was rumors and... Stuff was flying around, you know, oh, maybe the aspen trees are crowning and they don't have the conifer foliage, you know, they don't really crown. And yeah. And so we went up there, investigated that. And what we saw were these, you know, really high intense surface fires. So, you know, not engage, you know, there's no conifers to sort of engage the crown and all that stuff. Yeah. And there was also narratives about was this drought, you know, because yeah. we just come off the 2015 wildfire season, mm-hmm. which didn't have a lot of media coverage because, uh, Thankfully, it didn't really hit any communities. It, it sort of burned the areas of northern Alberta that didn't have communities yeah. or even really big oil and gas plants. So uh, it was an extremely busy year on the part of the province. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was very notable for area burn, the number of these medium-large size fires burning at the same time. And so 
that was a period of really high fire activity. And then we had Fort McMurray. And so there was a bit of a narrative building about, okay, well, was this a drought-driven fire? And fair enough, because a lot of sort of uncertainty and questions at the time of the fire. And uh, so one of the things about having a really big fire in Fort McMurray is that there's lots of people doing not fire-related research around there. Okay. They're studying reclamation of mine sites and the natural environment and a lot of stuff about how to sort of basically do mine recovery in a landscape perspective. How do we plant trees? How do we bring back the wetlands? And yeah. In the old, uh, you know, post-mine areas. Yeah. yeah, it's a huge area of really active research. Yeah. And, and part of that is that they have these natural analog sites. And so what happened to a whole bunch of students from various universities around there, uh, all over Canada, who sort of flock, they migrate to Fort McMurray to do a lot of sort of summertime research, yeah. is a lot of the natural analog sites that had a really good record of actually environmental Analog monitoring. Sites, I'm not sure what you mean. So, uh, you know, if you have, if you're studying the recovery of aspen trees in a in a reclaimed mine area, yep. you would then have a natural analog. So you'd have, oh, a, oh yeah, no, oh yeah, not analog, digital analog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. an, an analogous <laughs> site. I guess that's where we mean okay, analog, gotcha. but not yeah. analog. Uh, an analogous a control. control. There you yeah. go. Yeah. We call them analog sites. I don't know. <laughs> analogous, right? It's got to be and a so hedgehog, you, <laughs> The digital sites over here. Uh, and so what you have over there is a control, an undisturbed, you know, where the, the trees are doing the normal tree thing, right? Okay. And that's to sort of... <laughs> yeah, normal control. tree thing. Normal yeah. tree stuff. Like Moving it. water, fixing carbon, you know, all that normal tree <laughs> stuff. And so a lot of those sites that had actually years of sort of continuous monitoring of soil moisture and tree transpiration and all the sort of classic um, environmental monitoring stuff. They'd actually been monitoring for a number of years and then they burned over. And normally when we want to study what the ecological impacts of fire are, not for the stuff that Ellen does, which is more about, you know, the trees that are there. We want to study how water moves around in the soil, for instance. Mm -hmm. You can't just go in after the fire. You need need to, the best thing is to measure stuff before the fire, have a fire at that exact point, and then reinstall the equipment. Yeah, yeah. We don't really get to do that because you don't know when the fire is going <laughs> to be. You mean you're right? not going around setting fires? No. Or even well, the information. We, and we have ex- prescribed burns, but you know, you might it might be ten years before you have the weather opportunity, or five years. So it's yeah. just really inefficient. Yeah. And so we have this nat we call natural experiment, basically, where uh, a lot of these monitored sites then burned over. Right. <clears throat> and what that really helped us do was answer some of the questions about how drought-driven was the Fort McMurray fire. And that's really interesting learning about, okay, we have one fire season, and what's the what's the hangover into the next? Because yeah. we had a lot of fire in Alberta in 2015 into the fall. And right. then how much of that fire... Because risk, of drought. Because yeah, of, because yeah. of drought. And then how yeah. much of that carried over into into 2016 right and so in the in this paper we studied that this poor student who'd never seen a fire before he's another ontario southern ontario kid like me yeah and then you know i just knew the research group overall uh and, and the the guy's research site burned over yeah so, so i remember meeting him in a cafe in may of 2016 at the end of may and i was like okay we're gonna turn you into a fire scientist so <laughs> so the lead author matt uh elms uh we basically tried to reconstruct what the the sort of soil and water and the the drought environment, the drought status of the environment that we can infer from these really detailed measurements Mm -hmm. of the soil and water environment. And sparing all the details, what we had is um, soil moisture and and snow surveys of how much snow there was and all the precipitation records. And so what we're actually able to find out was that 2015, yeah, that was a really 
uh, big fire year in Alberta, driven a lot by a really strong drought through the yeah. fall of 2015. And then Something had, like 40, I think I read like 42% less precipitation generally over the winter. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but the... That's an average. <laughs> the, the fall, the, going into the winter of 2015, 2016, yeah. we had a good amount of snow early on. Uh, so that wasn't so bad. We actually had a decent amount of snow in the sort of November, December, January. But what really knocked uh, the fire danger back up wasn't the lack of snow. We had an average-ish sort of snowfall in the early winter. The late winter in the spring of 2016, so the sort of uh, March and April in particular, was very warm. And we yeah. lost what decent snow we had earlier in the year. Uh, and we actually saw, because we had the instruments in there, really strong drying mm. uh, early, early in the year, before we're even doing a lot of measuring. You know, yeah. we don't start up a lot of these weather stations and the fire towers don't start up until the 1st of May or something like that. And, yeah. and so we needed this sort of this, this monitoring to show that uh, under the right conditions, and it was an El Nino year, and that mm. drove a lot of the weather patterns that allowed for really early snow melt and then really strong drying really early in the year. Mm -hmm. and, and so the sort of crux of this paper goes around to say that it wasn't so much a hangover of the 2015 drought. We had a good pulse of snow earlier in the that helped recover the soil moisture. But then the sort of March and April, that early spring conditions were extremely dry. Yeah, And so the fire danger ticked back up, not as a hangover of 2015, and we're really fortunate that we got some snow yeah. in the sort of uh, late fall of 2015 or in Christmas time. We did get some good snowpack that replenished the soil moisture a little bit. And then and then all of that just disappeared in the spring of 2016. Earlier than it Earlier than normal, yeah. yeah. And, and in, a, in a really quick rate. And so we lost all that snow. And so yeah. what it really tells the lesson of is that we need to make sure that we're monitoring the snowpack environment particular in these El Nino years where we know, like we know yeah. by November, December that it's an El Nino year. Yeah. And so that really, you know, says that we should be doing a closer monitoring of the snowpack and the soil moisture. And these, these snow surveys and stuff, you know, Alberta does a great job of monitoring snow, but they say, okay, we're going in mid-March. Yeah. Well, th there could be nothing left. Could be gone, and yeah. So you, and, the, and we don't have really good tools about monitoring drought yeah. in the, the late, the sort of late winter, early spring. And so when you sort of reconstructed, why did we see pretty deep burning in a lot of these areas? Um, it was we could reconstruct from these instruments that we had in there that was really due to really strong drying in, uh, you know, the, the month of April where it was 30 degrees by the end of April. Yeah. And that's, you know, there's a reason that everyone was yeah. was uh, you, could, you could imagine why people were out there at the end of April. You know, they weren't snowmobiling at the no. end of April. They were quadding at the end of April because it was 30 degrees and the, the humidity was 10%. And so so the whole crux of that paper was to really uh, take a deep dive into, okay, well, we had this really big fire. And, of course, strong winds, hot and dry. Hmm. But, you know, was it a carryover of that 2015 drought? No. Actually, worse than that, it was a whole new dry period that occurred early in the spring. And right. And, uh, you know, to, to be really aware of that and, yeah. and, and uh, that, you know, when you get those days when the days are long uh, and it's very, very dry, we can get a lot of drying packed into just a few weeks and, and have a, an early start to the spring fire season as a yeah. result. 
and uh, so the, so it's a it's a lesson learned because we're going to have another El Nino year, and and just it's sort of a call of it to attention to yeah. to to really don't count on the snow that you got in Christmas to hang over yeah. until March because in a year like that you're getting these warm spells in the middle of February and March and. Yeah. All of a sudden, that nice snowpack that you had in December is gone, and then you have that early start to the fire season. Yeah. So I guess lessons learned is kind of start paying attention to fire weather index stuff measurements a little bit earlier in the year. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly it. And pay attention to the snowpack because yeah. it was the dynamics of the snowpack that really led to the drawing that we saw that seemed yeah. to contribute. It takes nothing away from the you know extreme winds and stuff that we yeah. had at the, but uh, you know we were able to, uh, you know, say that. The, the snowpack really matters, and and when that melting occurs, can get really early some years, and you got to pay attention to that because otherwise you could miss yeah. some of the really early season fire danger. Yeah, um, that's out there, and so maybe you staff your towers up a little bit earlier, and yeah. and now Alberta has the tools to do that. We moved it in, all ahead, I think a month or something. yeah. So now right? it's uh, used to be uh, April first, and now it's March first, right? So yeah. so you know, a province like Alberta recognizes that and has the tools to staff up early, and it's really challenging. You're trying to hire university students yeah. here. Well, no, exactly. They're still in school. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So these yeah. are challenges around the calendar like we can't and, and really the ultimate the bit the big sort of lesson there is fire doesn't listen to the calendar that we do no fire has its own rhythm and some yeah. years is going to start really early and, start. and we just sort of nailed down what those sort of drivers were of the dry conditions that we saw and they mm-hmm. were not based on a calendar date they were based on when that snow melt occurred yeah and and so to listen to that yeah. listen to the snow and listen to the weather and yeah. don't you know don't pencil in everything because some years it's going to be way earlier than you think. No, for sure. That makes sense. And there is, there is crews available earlier too, but for not, sure. but yeah. like you said, the majority of the crews are university students or whatever. Yeah. And so they're not available, but yeah, no, it's, I wonder how much of an effect had, like say they had studied the snowpack earlier and they knew that this was coming. I wonder if it would have changed, uh, suppress or suppression at all. Like the, the act, I, I don't, it sounds like from what I saw that everything was done very systematically in order properly like there wasn't really like i mean suppression of the fort mcmurray fire yeah doesn't sound like that would have really i don't know if it really would have changed the way they dealt with it right the only thing i can think of and this is they didn't have this information so i don't think alberta made inappropriate decisions but it could have led to an area closure oh yeah and that could have been one of the only things that would have made a difference because but the law wasn't the same back then too right they they didn't have that i I don't i don't know the full extent of the law but yeah i mean that's about the only thing that is a new power that they have yeah the law did change and i'm not sure what the previous uh area closure laws were like i forget but uh they tell us what started the fire they ever figure that out i i think the official word is that it's still under investigation i believe in the fire weird yeah i i think the slave lake fire officially has a cause the flat top complex does oh, oh but the slave okay lake fire but the slave does lake fire does right yeah. so the okay. one up on the hill outside of town yeah okay but not the town fire that um, one that one i know why but then but the one in town yeah, yeah. they don't yeah uh no in the cnfdb in the canadian national fire database it still says unknown for, for fort mcmurray for yeah. yeah that's but fair i mean these don't cases, they sort of disclose in the reports that like there was the the public report says there's no lightning yeah but that doesn't <laughs> mean that you know what the it yes. was caused by has, a human, yeah. Yeah. but I mean that's up to the investigators, the RCMP, to yeah. figure out was it, you know, an accident, was it a power line failure, what you know, it could be any could be number of, yeah. of things. No, for sure, um, it was a lot of things. But yeah, no, and and I think that's a good point, Ellen, is that um, you know that sort of extra information, you know, the staff up, you know, and we're we're done, sort of. They had the appropriate level of full response, obviously, yeah. given where that fire was and, yeah. and the intensity that the fire had. But yeah, it's the type of thing. It's that extra little bit of information that maybe 
uh, gives you the evidence going back to the sort of whole fire danger rating system, fire weather, the reason we have these things yeah. is that then it gives you the evidence to justify why you close a forest area down. Because you need sense. to really, yeah. people are going to ask you, you know, if you close a forest area, especially when you, more severe closure, when, you know, there's no forestry, there's no industrial activities. Yeah. You really need to have really good evidence why that is. And that's all we're trying to do is add an extra little bit of a, is a bit of a case study there, but sort of say you can look to these things or start looking at the snowpack or yeah. these other spring factors to help when appropriate justify these sorts of forest area closures because that's a big decision to make. I'm a scientist. I don't have to make those sorts of decisions, yeah. but I, I know the people that do and, and I would like them to have when appropriate that extra tool to help justify those sorts of decisions, which yeah. affect a lot of people's lives. Well, it's super important. I think, no, you're right. If, if, if it would have stopped just that, just the, would have, been, would have created a, a closure, a temporary closure, then yeah, who knows that may have, you know, prevented that fire from happening. But like, that's all, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But mm-hmm. I mean, going forward, we can expect like all the research suggests that we can expect more of these, you know, fires to happen, these catastrophic fires to happen. If that's the case, then yeah, we need exactly like what you're saying earlier earlier um verification of these of these indices and, and knowing when the snowpacks melted and we can close things down when we need to and i don't i don't really think that's happened a whole lot in the past and it seems like it's going to have to become a new norm we might be seeing a lot of closures of areas in the springtime in may specifically where most of the these catastrophic fires seem to happen yep. right no that's entirely right and and yeah. Yeah, the more we can anticipate these, and, and yeah, that spring fire season is dominated by by human ignitions, and almost all of them are yeah. accidental, right? Of course, yeah. um, we don't we don't have it's a lot not of arson. No, we don't have part. a lot of arson. You know, but it's it's people going about their lives, and maybe they're not. You know, and you see, and this comes out in the messaging. You know, check the muffler of your quad. Don't park your truck under tall grass if it has a catalytic converter. You know, all of these things. But it's one more tool in there to say like, okay, it's really dry, guys. So let's yeah. let's you know dial this back and unfortunately um you know you're you can't be in this forest until we get a bit of rain yeah you know and it's and it's too bad particularly when it gets into recreation and southern alberta was that this year i was gonna say like you you can almost again if an event doesn't happen it's really hard to learn from it but you could almost Mm. point to this summer in alberta as a success of introducing area closures and looking really closely at drought and fire weather indices because they had a lot of closures and really huge man up in southern Alberta. And so right. that's a lot of cost for the province. But they're, they didn't really have the fires arrive because they were so successful at preventing people from starting fires. And sure, we have lightning, which causes fires as well. But it kind of could have been a really yep. second disaster season yep. in southern Alberta this year. And it wasn't because they had a big success with implementing yeah. closures and keeping it in front of people's minds and in their awareness as well. And I feel like we should give a shout out to Cordy Teamstra because you talked about early warning signs and spring fires and he's working really closely mm-hmm. on developing mm-hmm. sort of better early warning systems for spring fire specifically for Alberta right. as part of his PhD research. Yeah. So That's people strange. are looking at these questions. Yeah. 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 And mine is just one little slice of a tiny little case study, but yeah, that's exactly it. Like this is uh, it's an area of research that we need to, and, 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 and let the public know. And it's really, it's really hard to justify that success that I would say Alberta had given the really hot, dry conditions they had all summer long. They didn't have any, you know, we saw fires in the crow's nest and, you know, the people lost homes and it was still really bad later, but the sort of, you know, the month of August, that was really, really, there was no really, really big fires, but there was a fire in Banff at Verdant Creek. Mm-hmm. It was right at sunshine, you know, in the national parks, not in the province of Alberta, um, BC, you know, smoke billowing across the border. And so the yeah. message got out there. Yeah. Um, and, and it is, you know, the, the lightning you can't prevent, 
but yeah. these these summertime fires um, that are caused by humans, like they're almost entirely preventable just by people being more careful. And if it means mm -hmm. that people can't be careful enough and you have to keep the, keep them out of the forest, then while it's dry, then while yeah. it's really dry, then then yeah. unfortunately that's the cost because you know we can't afford to have a Fort McMurray yeah. um, in the eastern slopes of the Rockies. We can't afford to have a Fort McMurray fire anywhere. Well, I can just see it now already too. Like speaking to what you were saying, it's hard to justify what didn't happen mm -hmm. right i could see the ohv community blowing up about like, oh we can't go out there because you guys keep shutting it down or whatever and nothing ever happens it's like yeah because you're not out there or whatever right like not necessarily trying to single out the ohv community but i'm just saying it, like you said it's hard to it's hard to point to people and be like look like this is we we need this in place we need to get this costs a lot of money we need to keep doing it because we're not seeing fires Right. If it, if we were seeing a bunch of fires, then maybe it's a waste of time, and we should try something else. But yeah, it's hard. It's hard in people's minds to justify. I guess yeah, that that kind of rationality. Mm -hmm. it's weird, yeah. Well, there's an area closure, and it's like it's a long weekend, and then after it happens, like no fires happen, and people are really annoyed with you because yeah. you ruined their weekend and yeah. nothing happened. Yeah. But hopefully, a lot of why nothing happened is because you made an informed decision based on research and protected the forest for them and their kids a year from now yeah science yay <laughs> uh i have one other question actually relating to your research about uh patches left mm. after a fire um so uh you mentioned quickly in, about uh with like forestry trying to emulate natural disturbance uh leaving uh retention patches or single tree patches uh and currently we are kind of doing them randomly we're just kind of doing whatever we think might work and there's there's studies like the e study going on studying all that kind of stuff uh but you uh mentioned the specifics about why these patches are left from a fire right so structure and vegetation type and that kind of stuff i wonder what kind of lessons do you think the forest industry could take from knowing those things and should we be leaving those patches specifically like the similar ones that the fire would leave or do you think that there's a, enough of a different kind of intention that we could leave randomly as we are now yeah i guess i'd say sort of this is the first study in this forest region because other people have looked at this in other places yeah. um and actually that's not totally true because a lot of people have done land cover studies but they haven't tied it necessarily to structure in terms of what determines residuals or remaining trees after fire yeah um, so it's still kind of preliminary to really be prescribing, you know, if the tree is this big or whatever, <laughs> you're not going to cut it because the fire wouldn't do that. But I think that we can learn from it because if we assume that the landscape is adapted to these recurrent fires and they've been happening ever since trees reappeared after glaciation, um, we we can expect that if we're trying to make our disturbances more similar to a natural one that disturbs the largest area in the boreal forest that it probably makes sense to move towards something like that yeah i think it would be expensive and a lot of work for people to have to do even more detailed planning because like you said right now it's maybe not totally random per se and obviously high value things and specific habitats and so on are protected it's not totally just like i drew a wiggly line right but yeah, um yeah, yeah, <laughs> to a certain extent it is kind of just like i made it shaped wiggly depending on like if you're doing like strip cuts or something it's just kind mm -hmm. of the strip location is kind of random right but it, yeah yeah, there is, yeah. There is it's not totally random but yeah. it's not 
it would be a lot more work to now go in and say, okay, well, if I look at sort of the species in this area and the size and the whether or not it's a wetland kind of thing, this probability or this likelihood of the stand not burning needs to be incorporated. Yeah. But I think it's something that we could do. And yeah. I think that it would probably be positive for the environment, I expect. But there's all these economic pressures as well. So it would be more expensive to implement and what I found for that region specifically was the trees that tended to survive tended to be larger trees, which are kind of high value timber um, (laughs) in some cases. Um, And then also wetlands, which are actually pretty low value timber. So maybe that's a good finding, but um, yeah, I guess that's kind of a wishy washy answer, but I think it's a positive thing that we could work towards. And I think it's just important to know that if we create residual stands with our harvesting and expect them to function like natural ones mm. and yet we don't consider what we know about how those natural ones are formed it's probably not going to produce the exact same habitat or the exact same outcome for the environment that we were expecting yeah and i also feel like i should point out it totally depends on the ecosystem you're in as well because other people have looked at structure of residual stands in other parts of the boreal forest in canada and their finding was the opposite and that smaller trees Uh, So I found that large basal areas tended to be an indicator that a stand was more likely to survive. And they found that small basal area was an indicator. But in their case, it was sort of wetlands were low productivity, so the trees were smaller, so it was really wet. So they were using structure as an indicator for topoidaphic context or or site moisture. Um, But it depends where you are. So that's another level of complexity that you then would have to account for where you're going to need all your specialists to be super regional. And I, I think it's a really complex problem course but i think that <laughs> aren't they all <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i think that it's it's just really important to know that it's not necessarily totally random right and i think just having that knowledge is still a step in the right direction yep. to possibly implementing a more refined system or at least like recognizing that we can't expect to accomplish exactly what a fire does no it's not it's not replicating fire it's emulating natural disturbance we're just trying to make it seem more like a natural disturbance it's not going to be fire per se right mm-hmm. it's, yeah exactly and but if we can make it more similar and if we want to do that maybe in a, a really special ecological area that still has active harvesting or or if it's something like we're interested in reducing fire risk through fire smarting and we're going to do that by harvesting in an area yeah. that if, if we can do that really carefully and recognizing the actual drivers on the landscape that make these stands survive it's it's good to know and can be implemented down the road i think yeah no for sure that makes sense and i think like the good thing is with forestry i think it's moving more into uh i mean it's always we've always taken into account environmental factors and trying to do right by the environment and sustainability right but i think you're right like the the, the economic impact is huge because it's not a, it's not a really uh high percentage you know we get, don't, there's not a lot of revenue to be had right it's a pretty tight industry but i think as technology moves forward and our, our capacity to, to do these things moves forward i think we've gotten we're gonna be getting better at it i think you're only going to see forest management plans get more specific and considering these types of things more and more and more and more and down the line in a hundred years i imagine it's going to be so quite a bit different than what we do now and we're trying to emulate natural disturbance in a very specific way and i I wouldn't be surprised to see uh uh, forest management companies actually cutting timber that way and and leaving bigger ones because i mean there is they don't really selectively cut anymore right they just kind of cut what's in what's in the in the cup lock what's Mm -hmm. what's laid out in the stand and uh yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see that they, 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 they changed their strategy a little bit in that way. So it's just, it's just an interesting thing to think about. I wonder, I'd be curious to see a study that shows how those things 
how they relate, right? But it's, I guess, it'll take, it would take us 100 years to get that study figured out for rotation times and everything else. And yeah, it's impossible. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've, well, I feel like people are working on it, like Ellen McDonald, who yeah. you interviewed a while ago, and, and, and EMAND and other experiments like that, for sure. But yeah, I totally agree. It's The technology is there, and we're getting, with remote sensing, more and more detailed structural maps of forest characteristics that can be incorporated into these plans and we don't I, I think a lot can be done with um vegetation inventory and, yep. and imagery and so on but if again if you if you don't have the money or if you're managing a vast area there's a lot available to you now that wasn't in the past that yeah. can be used to help make those decisions and i know just from speaking to like ornithologists or bird people or, or other people that look at uh, species richness or diversity or just species in general in these habitats they have expressed frustration with the sort of like oh well the residual stand was this really cruddy area <laughs> that had very few trees already and was in decline but doesn't have like good standing dead I right don't know, dead, structure for yeah, birds or whatever yeah. it, it didn't reflect necessarily either like the proportion on the landscape that was there before they clearly left something really low value to them or alternatively they didn't feel that it reflected what would have happened naturally if the stand had burned or had a wind throw event or something so i think that people who study ecology are interested in making a shift that way and it sounds like foresters are too so that's really positive Mm -hmm. but yeah hopefully like technology will help get us there because it's pretty expensive right now to do something like that yeah it's a slow slow progress right like yeah no, it's, it's not surprising. It takes time for technology to take hold of society and make changes. <laughs> uh, man, we are flying through time. Sorry. Um, no, 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 no. This is what it is. Uh, just, it's just it's just crazy how fast these things go go by. So uh, in the interest of not making this a three-hour podcast, um, <laughs> I have, like, so many other questions that I wanted to ask. But uh, do you guys individually have any, like, kind of final thoughts, anything you wanted to get off your chest about research you had or anything like that? If not, that's okay, too. We can wrap this thing up. It's not a big deal. The only thing I can think of that occurred to me much earlier in the conversation was, yeah, having an increased familiarity with boreal forest fire for people that live in the boreal forest. Yeah. I'm not saying every single Canadian. If you live in Toronto, I won't be hurt. You don't have a deep <laughs> understanding of the boreal forest but and, and how fire fits in in that system. But I think that it would be great if people knew a little bit more about it. And unfortunately, really big events like Fort McMurray have taught people more about it. But I think part of the problem that we have with people understanding fire and sort of looking at a burned landscape and not saying, oh, it's devastated, the forest will never come back. And you've said this in some of your podcasts about clear cuts, for example. Like you look at it and you're like, ah, it's ruined forever. But, you know, if it's been planted or even if it hasn't been planted, you know, trees come back. And I think part of the disconnect is just sort of the lifetime of a forest versus the lifetime of a human. So when you see a fire on the landscape and you, it's already trees again and you aren't trained to recognize that shift in the structure or that age cohort, you're just like, well, that's a forest. But, or alternatively, when when you experience a severe fire near your community and it destroys your favorite recreation area, destroys, I'm doing air quotes now, which is again, (laughs) useless on a podcast. (laughs) It can be really hurtful to you because you're so emotionally connected to this landscape, but the trees necessarily don't have the same perception as you, neither do the plants, neither do all the birds. So, but you aren't necessarily going to be around 50 years from now to see it return to what it was. So 
I don't necessarily have a solution to this, but I think that sort of the lifetime of a forest versus the lifetime of a human, that to a certain extent they line up. We're living longer and longer. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I think that kind of is part of the struggle that people have to understand fire on the landscape and not see it as a devastating threat when it is personally a risk to you, yeah. but how it affects the landscape is different. Yep. Yeah, and if you're a black-backed woodpecker <laughs> who specializes in burned forests, and eating the little longhorn beetles that are attracted to fire, then you think fire is the best thing. Yeah. And if you're a really old white spruce tree, maybe you try to avoid fire. <laughs> yeah. So that's okay too. And, and and I think every organism in the forest, um, you know, the morel mushroom would argue very much in favor of fire. <laughs> and I would argue my stomach would argue in favor of morel mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and every organism in the forest has a different way of living with fire. Some avoid and some embrace. And... Uh, you know, when you spend a lot of time looking at that whole range of, you know, how many post-fire recruitment specialist plant, little understory plants do you see that you don't really appreciate until you break down the forest floor to a square meter at a time. And you notice yeah. that that little geranium seed that we now see as a sprout has been there for 60, 70 years, yeah. wait, you know, waiting. waiting for that fire. And so you realize that every organism in the forest has its own way of living with fire and, and humans do as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in a, in a landscape like most of Alberta's uh, forested areas, you know, that fire is, all, like you said, it's been there since the glaciers retreated. And uh, we're, we're newer, you know, the way we do forestry and the way we do agriculture and the way we do communities is, is new newer than fire and uh, we're still learning the ways to, to sort of adapt and live with it yeah no for sure i think people misunderstand that the forest isn't static right they think oh well it was this nice beautiful old growth forest why can't everything be old growth forest mm -hmm. really because that is not biodiverse that is not healthy that is not a number of things and the forest doesn't work that way <laughs> yeah it's hard for people to get, get that across i know with like uh down south especially like Castle Mountain area or like say uh, Spray Lakes FMA or like some other areas like that where people can see burns and they can see cup locks and they can see these things and they think this is a travesty like this is all burnt this is all cut this is all this is this is horrible right but they yeah they don't they don't understand that temporal nature of the forest it's like the forest is is, is not temporal but the you know stand change all the time the forest is constantly changing it's not a static thing it's always changing so yeah no, those are good points for sure awesome well, thanks a lot for coming on, guys. This is good. This thanks. is awesome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks a lot for listening, guys. That was really good. Uh, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Leave a comment. It really helps me understand what you guys like, what you don't like. You know, that's it's it's good information for me to know. Uh, yeah, rate and review. Tell your friends. Share it on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that good stuff. It all helps. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot for listening, guys. We will see you next time.